Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. Hello, I'm Xiaoxuan Li, and I'm a graduate student in Chinese literature. And today we'll be talking with a colleague of mine from the English department about what she calls macro-realism, fiction that helps its readers understand their place in a complex and fast-changing world. We'll also be asking her for her take on Lena Dunham's Girls. Almost a year after its debut, has the show fulfilled its initial promise? For most listeners, the phrase Victorian novel is likely to conjure up the image of a very specific type of book. Long, complex, and full of diverse characters. Our guest today is Liz Maynes Amenzadi, a PhD candidate in English who studies exactly why the novels of Dickens and Eliot and Trollope looked the way they did, and argues that the Victorian take on fiction is making something of a contemporary renaissance. Liz, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Your dissertation is on the style that you call macro-realism. Can you begin by describing what exactly that is? Sure. It might actually be easier if I may begin by giving a little bit of how I understand the history behind how this form emerged. One of the reasons why we're seeing this kind of literary fiction experience a revival today has to do with similar conditions in the history of what is sometimes called globalization. So. A lot of us today have experienced these kind of anxieties about, say, where our food came from or where our clothes came from.、Um, even something as trivial as the act of purchasing a, a bottle of soda from the corner store might make you think about all the different kinds of systems that you're supporting and might not want to be supporting. Right. So one of my claims is that these ethical anxieties actually have. Roots tracing back along before the contemporary moment, and those anxieties start to manifest in literary fiction,、um, including in the form of fiction in the 19th century. So, the kind of literature that I call macrorealism both thinks of itself as ethically engaged fiction that's trying to teach its readers about what this kind of interconnected world looks like. And how to behave responsibly in that world,、mm. um, and it does so by a lot of different techniques.、Um, one of which I call the stranger narrative. Another of which might be more familiar, omniscience, which is a, a literary technique that goes through a lot of changes in the nineteenth、mm. century. Okay, so so we'll get into those a bit later, but、sure. let's begin actually by well, at the beginning. So,、sure. what do you see as the moment, the originary moment of macro realism? I see. I don't know if I would want to make any sort of strong originary claims, but the moment that I really start with is the mid 19th century, about the 1850s, and one of the reasons for this is because I think that moment in English history is analogous to the kind of rapid phase of, of globalization that we've been experiencing. Arguably, since like the end of the Cold War. So, what do you see? What do you see happening in the in the English economy around that time? Yeah, a few different things. One of the big things is the invention of the railroad and the spread of both the railroads and the telegraph system, really throughout the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. Another in England is the rise of free market ideology, which leads to. Things like the the lifting of of trade protectionist trade tariffs and this new level of commercial activity across national borders.、Mm. And how did this impact the dissemination of literature? Some of the examples that Nick had mentioned, and the type of people who would be reading these kind of fiction. 
So I'm focusing on really a few of the the big canonical people in that period, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Anthony Trollope, all of whom not only were writing innovative kinds of literature, but also really saw themselves as having this moral responsibility to both reach a large audience of readers and to help them think about how to be an ethical actor. So I I try to look at the different specific innovations that I think each of them really contributed to to narrative form. Um, So the Dickens chapter, I talk about this, this thing I'm calling the stranger narrative that I think he sort of invents around 1850 and that has become really popular once again among the same kind of storytellers. So tell us a bit more about this stranger narrative. In what novel does does he invent it and and what does it look like? Sure. Well, so in in the beginning of his career, he's writing a lot of stories that focus on one individual at the center, Mm -hmm. like Oliver Twist or Nicholas Nickleby, or maybe a family or a group of friends. But around, uh, I guess, 1852 with the publication of Bleak House, that's kind of the first novel I see this manifesting in. Um, and also Little Dorrit and Our Mutual Friend, two other novels from later in his career. What The structure of these novels, to my mind, is very different in that instead of focusing on one group or one individual, they shift among several different groups of people, of friends or coworkers or whatever it might be. And for much of the novel, we as readers don't actually know what it is that's connecting those different groups of people. So in Bleak House... It opens with this aristocratic couple living in an English country manor. In the next chapter, we're following this, this young orphan in the outskirts of London. And then the next chapter, we're following this bachelor who lives in central London. And slowly, some of them start to meet and some of them never meet. But the upshot of all of this is that the reader is really forced to think a lot about social networks and the properties of actions as they travel across networks. So just as two characters in a novel who never actually meet might be implicated in the plot, uh, the readers are supposed to think that they might be implicated in the lives of others whom they've never met? Exactly. I mean, that's the claim I want to make. And and one of the reasons why this effect is so powerful from reading this kind of omniscient fiction is that we as readers are able to see things that the characters themselves can't see. So a lot of these characters might not be aware of how one of their actions has gone on to echo and, and somehow end up changing the life of somebody they don't know. But the omniscient narrator knows all of that, and, and we are privy to that same point of view. And is this something that um, that appeared for the first time in, in Dickens, in this example that you're giving now? Or do you think that given this new background that you're describing um, in 1850s, that it's that it's the interpretation of these different social networks and groups that is new here by the reader. Again, don't want to lean too heavy on anyone as being the the originary mm-hmm. moment. And I think a lot of variance on this kind of novel structure can trace back at least to the 18th century. I mean, someone like Henry Fielding is is developing a similar kind of omniscient narrator who, who seems to know everything and be able to move around and see into the minds of different characters. But uh, I do think that this this way of structuring a story um, is is a kind of spatial perspective that you don't see a lot of in in fiction before the mid nineteenth century, and then it really takes off in the second half. So Dickens starts to do this, but then 
for instance, Middle March has a similar structure, even though it's in a small rural town. This is George Eliot's most famous novel. It also follows this network of characters, some of whom are related to each other, are friends, but others of whom actually never meet each other. So this this becomes a big part of the way that stories get told in um, late 19th century England. Great. So give us some of the evidence that Dickens was thinking about the pedagogical purpose of his novel when he was writing uh, Bleak House. Well, he, for one thing, not only wrote novels, but founded two journals uh, that were targeted at more of a middle class and even working class audience than was common for a novelist of that profile. So he really was thinking about his readership and also in developing with his publishers new publication formats, arguably kind of inventing the serialized novel um, as a way of making novels affordable to a kind of reader who, who couldn't otherwise afford to buy novels in bound volumes, which were much more expensive. So f- on the one hand, he was very class conscious about who was reading his fiction. Um, he went on lecture tours and loved to have an audience. Um, I think he really relished being this kind of literary celebrity. He even came to America once, right? He did, twice, I, I oh, believe. Twice, yeah. but, and he wrote, he wrote not, not too fondly about it. Mm-hmm. And in talking about the pedagogical intent of these novels, um, would it be accurate to say that different authors at this time had different or competing ethical visions that they would express through their novel and in, in an intent to attempt to help the readers navigate this more complex world that they're facing? Yeah, I think you absolutely, when you look at someone like Dickens in comparison to, to Eliot or even Trollope, it's easy enough to group them all into a kind of a Victorian ethical mindset, but of course there, there's all sorts of differences in what what their politics were, um, what they would have said about certain social and political issues of the day. So I guess one distinction to draw is that in, in grouping them together in this category, I don't think of them as didactic novelists. I don't think that necessarily macro-realism is about teaching us specific lessons or, you know, you should think X about this social problem, mm-hmm. but rather it's about trying to inform the reader and trying to expand our sociological imagination in a way that will, I don't want to say empower, but will, will help us make more informed ethical decisions for ourselves. We've been focusing on the author side of these books, but mm-hmm. let's talk for a second about their audiences. Um, do you have much evidence that, that these books actually changed the way that their audiences thought about uh, the economy and society? The the short answer to that is no. Um, it's not really a, a reader response oriented project, and and it's a tricky thing. That's a tricky thing to find evidence for. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite sure what that would look like. Maybe a, a marginalia of a reader who had read Bleak House and then at the end said, "Aha! I, no, I suddenly feel complicit." And yeah, I don't I don't have anything like that. I guess my approach is more. I'm interested in in situating these authors in a a broader cultural debate about some of these ethical questions. So so you have everyone from men of letters like Carlyle to political philosophers like Emerson to, you know, journalists and and novelists and political economists all engaging with, I think, a similar set of questions, which to my mind is proof enough that 
these these anxieties were on people's minds. So part of your project is the assertion, right, that this macrorealism is undergoing something of a renaissance today, mm-hmm. right? So could you give us a few examples of macrorealistic cultural artifacts from this century? Sure. Well, the the main one I write about in my dissertation is The Wire, the HBO drama, which I am certainly not the first to compare to a 19th century novel. But one thing that I think those comparisons often overlook, they tend to emphasize the fact that The Wire is also interested in social problems or in um, representing the poor or victimized children of urban inequality. Um, but it, it also, of course, has these formal resonances with um, 19th century macroscopic fiction. So The Wire, too, is is a stranger narrative. For anyone who's seen it, the way that it unfolds is by following all of these different, you might say, different worlds of Baltimore. So there's the world of education, there's the world of local politics, the world of the media, the world of the drug trade, and the world of the police. And as we watch it, we, the viewers, start to see the connections among these different worlds in ways that, again, the characters often themselves don't realize. And are there opposing uh, opposing ways or, or, I guess, countercurrents to what you would call this macro-realistic type of novel, both in the 19th century and in what you see as a renaissance of this form today? Definitely. In talking about macro-realism as a, as a dominant form in the latter 19th century, uh, certainly is not the only mode that people are writing in. And a lot of the canonical novels, novelists of that period, people like um, Charlotte Bronte or slightly earlier Jane Austen, wouldn't make sense at all to talk about under this rubric. They're more invested in, in carving out, I guess, smaller worlds, focusing on uh, single characters or families, um, whatever it may be. And in the contemporary moment, too, I mean, I guess we're we're going to talk about girls later. I would I don't think girls is also macro realist yeah. at all. So, so definitely this is just one of many um, modes of of representation. Yeah. Definitely, but it is still your assertion that it was uh, dominant in the mid nineteenth century and is becoming dominant today. Yeah. Right? So I wonder what happened in between. Um, when was it not dominant? And and it's not that the uh, global economy was was simpler in the mid say twentieth mm-hmm. century. So what was what was it about the situation then um, during the twentieth century that 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 put macrorealism uh, out of dominance? Yeah. Well, and uh, so as you say, it's not it's not as if people stopped being worried about these problems raised by globalization in the twentieth century. And and it doesn't uh, macrorealist techniques don't disappear either. And you could see in a novel like Ulysses some of the same elements of kind of omniscient narration and characters whose stories are weaving t- together. But I think it does fall out of fashion in a way among the ambitious novelists of that of that modernist period for many reasons, but um, largely because of the influence of Henry James, who is novelist writing at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and not only modeling in his novels, but also writing a lot of theory about what a novel should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of his main claims was that rather than having these third-person omniscient narrators who seem to understand everything about the worlds that they're narrating, we should tell stories through the limited, refracted consciousness of an individual character. And you can see how that theory of the novel would have made an impact on who we think of as the the high modernist writers of the teens and 20s Mm -hmm. who are really interested in 
in the mechanisms of consciousness and more more interested in the way we perceive or even misperceive the world than in trying to tell a totalizing story that would help readers understand and comprehend that world. Right, uh, because part of the story of modernism is the story of the arts turning it on themselves, right? So instead of being mm -hmm. uh, mechanisms for teaching about the outside world, they become instead self-enclosed, beautiful prisms, right? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you're Nick, you're the modernist in the room, so I hope that sounds convincing to you. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. I, I buy it, Liz. All right. Stamp of approval. Yes. And, and what is it about um, our current age that you think might have led to um, a renaissance in this form? Is it just a fact that that what you've explained about Henry James's influence has died out, and this is just the reemergence of, of a trend that was popular once in the 19th century? Or is there a specific stimulus that led to this? There's, yeah, there's a, there's a couple ways, I guess, to think about that. And one is what the first thing you suggested of, you know, maybe Henry James' influence has come to its end. Or there's, I think, an internal logic to aesthetic trends where one generation reacts against the one before it, and then what they're doing gets played out, and then maybe we come back to the earlier thing with some sort of twist on it. And I think that's part of it. I think we've gotten to a point at the late 20th century where a lot of writers are are tired of what <laughs> the modernists were doing. I think also, I mean, I don't want to draw any sort of heavy connection like the Berlin Wall comes down and <laughs> suddenly everyone's writing stories about how everyone's interconnected. But I do think that that break marks a, a new moment in which there's there's a new kind of cultural discourse about globalization in the last couple of decades that inevitably is going to make its way into literary and aesthetic products of the era. Yeah, although I imagine since, since the example you gave of your comparison is a television show, mm -hmm. which is quite a different genre than, than the novel, that even if this form is, this method of writing is coming back, there are certainly variations in how it's being carried out now. Definitely. I mean, in I think the question becomes a different one also when you start thinking across media. One thing to my mind that characterizes these macro-realist novelists, like people like Jonathan Franzen or Zadie Smith, that sets them apart from a lot of 20th century similar kinds of writers, is that they have they seem to me to have this commitment to educating their readers. And they also, kind of like Dickens, they want to be these these moral moral legislators and that to me feels like a, a very Victorian attitude towards the novel and towards fiction um, and I think that might have something to do with the perceived decline in in relevance of the novel as a form part of the reason people talk about the death of the novel is because it's it's got more and more to compete with yep. in terms of visual media and film and television, and especially now, <laughs> for a while, you know, it, a novelist could carve out the novel as this safe space of, of highbrow culture. But now that TV is, is officially great, I think it's been sanctioned <laughs> as, as another arena in which there's, there's really good art there, too. Um, and so I think a lot of this, this cuts across those lines of cultural status affiliated with these different media. 
So like good citizens of the 21st century, then let's uh, abandon literature for television. Uh, if, if there's anything that could be called required viewing among the demographics most represented in graduate school, it's the HBO television series Girls. The hype around the show began a year ago now, well before it actually launched, when the media caught wind that the show's creator was the 26-year-old Lena Dunham, who had set out to become the, quote, voice of her generation, end quote, through a show focusing on a clan of young women in New York that would do for the recession-battered millennials what Sex and the City did for Clinton-era yuppies. So, Liz, if the aim of macro-realism is to help explain the labyrinthine mechanisms of global capitalism, what, what is the aim of these shows focused on small, homogenous bands of friends? I don't know if I can answer that question. I watch a show like Girls as a comedy that a lot of my appreciation of it stems from just that it makes me laugh a lot, which doesn't do justice to its, its I guess, intellectual complexity. Um, but I don't, how would, I don't... How would you describe the intellectual complexity? I think most of us do tend to receive it simply as a comedy or as simply an effort to portray a certain type of human being that mm -hmm. a lot of us know a lot of. But you think it has a bit more heft behind it than that? I think that its characters are complex in a way that you don't, you certainly don't see on most network shows of that genre. You certainly didn't see on Sex and the City, which you were mm -hmm. comparing it to. I guess I don't know if nuanced character portraits amount to intellectual complexity. What do you think? Well, so actually, I'm going to I'm going to turn to Shoshun actually because we have a remarkable sort of rare bird in in you now. Uh -huh. You're someone who I, mean, I think most of us have been marinated in the conversation surrounding girls for so long that it's almost impossible to talk about it anymore. But <laughs> you had never seen the show. I have never seen it, so I'm wondering why was there a hype and why are people of our of our class or our situation, graduate students? so polarized by this show? Why do people either love it or hate it and have such strong opinions on it? Well, because it's an attempt to speak for this generation. And any, att any attempt that ambitious is going to find both a lot of critics, right, who mm -hmm. said, you can't speak for me. These aren't the people I hang out with. Yeah. And a lot of admirers who say, yeah, you've really captured something about the way that we uh, live now. Right? Do you think that, I, I think that was its biggest, either biggest mistake or most canny PR move is to present itself as maybe being the voice of a generation. Because, of course, that's going to piss everybody off. That's mm -hmm. such a brazen thing to say. But I wonder, well, though, how seriously do you take that? I mean, I watched right. the first episode, and isn't that what the character Hannah says exactly. so facetiously to her parents in that hotel yeah. room with her novel? A voice of a generation. <laughs> she She kind of undercuts that own that own claim right after making it. So that's kind of, that's what I was going to say to you, Nick. Like, do you actually think the show wants people to see it as, as being the voice of a generation? Or is that the burden that we've put on it um, or that, you know, various critics have put on it because of the way it got publicized? I think it does. I think that is uh, Lena Dunham's ambition. I just think that in today's postmodern uh, environment, that's the only way that you can express mm -hmm. such an ambition is with irony, is through making your hmm. protagonist a kind of boob when she utters that line, right? But that's actually mm -hmm. the show's creator speaking it with a measure of sincerity. See, the, but then the other element of the show that makes it so polarizing and appealing, depending on who you talk to, is that it gets talked about as a women's show or as as representing female experience um, in a kind of new and exciting way. And that seems to go against the claim that it's speaking for a whole generation, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and for a long time, especially in the first season, uh, I would watch the show and I would almost find myself offended by the portrayal of men in the show um, who tend to be these kind of goofballs who serve as foils against which, against which the girls can assert their own personalities. And I recognize that this was just in part a counterbalance to years and years of over-representation over of men in, in, in television. So I, don't, I didn't mind it that much. But in recent episodes, I'm actually finding that the men, especially uh, Adam Driver, who plays the love interest from the first season, are coming to have real personalities of their own. And yeah, he's great. I would say his his quirkiness rivals Hannah's quirkiness easily. Yeah. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we're up against the hour. So, um, Liz Mains, Aminzade, th- thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, My Liz. pleasure. And thank you, as always, Shaoshun. Thanks, Nick. Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.